you know, there's something powerful about home. And especially, especially when you hear a song like that, it kind of reminds you of kind of those moments you have the longing for home. Sometimes you're on a business trip maybe for a while. And the whole time you're there, it's like, oh, you get to travel all the time. Isn't that great? You're like, oh, my goodness, no, it's just a bunch of meetings. And you're like, man, I just can't wait to get home. Other times you might be doing something exciting. I mean, you might be out on an adventure. And you may have just traveled someplace, explored something amazing. But at the end of that time, you're still like, man, just something great about coming home. And God designed the home to be a place where you could be encouraged. He would put courage in you. Because, you know, life can be filled with wars and battles and challenges. And the home was designed to be a place that someone would encourage you, put the courage in you you needed to take on whatever battles came your way, to not only survive but to thrive. And if you've ever been on an adventure, maybe a camping excursion or maybe you're a, a skier and at the end of the night you're sitting around a campfire, something about staring into the fire. You just stare at it forever and it's just mesmerizing. If you get around people long enough or sitting in front of a fire, they start to tell stories. Funny stories, goofy stories, but sometimes it's stories of challenges they faced, how they made it through it, how they almost got crushed, how they overcame in the end. And sitting around those fires, telling those stories, we're reminded that we need people, we need other resources to kind of encourage us and to come alongside us as we approach the, the challenges in life. In fact, it would be a lot easier if life was like a connect the dots, you know, go from here to here. But life is not like that. Life is more like wandering back and forth and around on these different adventures before we finally get where we're going. And in the meantime, we face challenges we didn't necessarily know or didn't necessarily predict. So join me around the campfire. Think about your own journeys your own battles, your own challenges, and maybe who's been with you on those long and windy roads. Have you thought about your own journey, your own long and windy roads, especially when you go on an adventure, something exciting about going on an adventure, and yet on that adventure it comes with facing the unknown, facing fears, facing challenges, facing some battles. But what if you knew while you're going on those adventures that you could kind of take a little piece of home with you? What if you knew you had someone with you you could trust, someone who was powerful, someone who was equipped, someone who could take on the lions or the bobcats or the bears who might jump at you? You would be able to face that uncertainty despite the turns and the twists and the windy roads with absolute confidence. When God took his people on an adventure... He gave them this big tent called the tabernacle. And he, he took them out of Egyptian bondage. And he began to lead them out toward what he called the promised land. But in doing so, he tells us he did not take them the short way. Instead, he took them the long way. Here's what it says in the Bible. It says, it did not take him by way of the Philistines, though that was near, that was shorter well, why not? Like, if he's God and he cares about me, why isn't he taking me the short route? Why is God taking me on the long and windy road? And here it tells us why. He took them on the long and windy road because 
He knew if he took them the short way, they would face the Philistines and they would face battle and war. And they'd been in bondage as slaves for 400 years. They weren't yet prepared for the challenges before them. And they'd see war and say, you know what? Let's go back home. Not the home of the uncertainty before me, but the home of bondage and slavery in Egypt. God knew they did not yet know how to trust him to be the strength they needed for whatever winding roads they were on. But a good guide does that, right? Good guide's got you on this winding path and suddenly you're like, why am I here? This is going on forever. And then poof, a waterfall. And you're like, oh, that's why we came this way. Or wow, look at that view. That's the idea God has with the adventure he has for us. In fact, there's at one point before they head out into the wilderness that, that God's leading his people and they got poof, a wall of water on one side, the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army, the warriors of their day, coming after them. And they're about to get crushed in between. And God supernaturally delivers them through the Red Sea. Crushes their enemy, the biggest warriors they knew. And they begin to sing this song, Moses and all the Israelites. They're starting to learn how to trust God to be their warrior on this adventure. Moses begins to sing the song. He says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously over the horse and his rider and the chariot. The Lord is my strength and my song. The Lord is a man of war, which is the Hebrew term for a warrior. So let me ask you this. When you face the unknown, when you face challenges in your life, how would you face it differently if you knew you had a warrior on your side? See, you don't have to fear if you're traveling with a warrior, right? There might be a bear, there might be a bobcat, but you know, you've got a warrior who's fully trained to take on whatever challenges, whatever battles, whatever uncertainty comes your way. It transforms your ability to see the current circumstances in your life. And I'm going to propose to you today that this tabernacle, this simple tent, was designed to be a war camp to remind them that they had a warrior in their midst. How does a warrior transform us? Well, it's a big weekend. You know, September 11th was 20 years ago. I was listening to an interview with a warrior last week, Scott Mann. He's a colonel, retired now. And he described what warriors do when we came into Afghanistan in 2010. It's an amazing story. I'm not sure I knew what Green Berets did until he shared his story. He said, Navy SEALs are the ones who go in, get the job done, and get out. Green Berets don't work like that. Green Berets parachute in. They get to know the indigenous people. They build trust in those relationships. And they transform the world, the community, through those types of relationships. Really? He said, in 2010, the American coalition forces were not doing real well against ISIS and the Taliban. And when he and his men arrived, they discovered the only way they were going to build trust is there was a particular 82-year-old fighter, one of the Afghanistan leaders that was there. And so he asked to have a meeting with this man who hated the American coalition forces. And he agreed. We'll come back to that story in a second. He came to another village. 
in this village. He met with the leaders. And this village had been under trauma for the last 40 years of, of just attacks back and forth. And he met with the leaders there and he said, guys, we're going to make three promises to you. Promise number one is if you ask us to leave, we will leave, but we're here to help. Number two, things are going to get worse before they get better because we're going to try and protect you against the, the ISIS intruders and attackers that are coming your way. And number three, we will be here to defend you. Well, we'll see if we can trust these folks. <laughs> so sure enough, he says, they asked us to be there. The first night, ISIS found out that we were there and was coming after this village and coming after the, the kids and coming after us. And so all the green berets, they climbed up on the top, up the ladders, they climbed up on the roof, and all night long, they fought and shot and fought and shot and fought and shot against enemy fire. The villagers just watched. At the end of the day, they grabbed their wounded, they took them down off the rooftop, bandaged everybody up. Next night, they climbed back up the ladder and did it again. Fighting, protecting, fulfilling their promises. About a weekend, they were the only ones up there fighting. They climbed up about a week and a half in, and now they're aimed up for another tough night and long night, and they suddenly hear a gunfire coming from a nearby roof. It's one of the local farmers. They got one. One of the farmers protecting his village, protecting his town, protecting his family. So this one farmer and all the green braves continue to fight on behalf of this village. The next night they climb up, <coughs> two farmers, three farmers, four farmers. Pretty soon the entire village sent their protectors up to the top of the rooftop. And this idea began to spread all through Afghanistan to the point at which people were protecting their own village because when they had a warrior in their midst, it encouraged them to be confident, encouraged them to be courageous, encouraged them to trust, encouraged them to begin to see and protect the things that mattered most to them. Say, so you have nothing to fear when you're traveling with a warrior. So I want to show you two aspects of this war camp that God gives and how it can apply to our life. And the first one is that a war camp was designed to show that you had a warrior with you. And that that was designed to give you confidence. Absolute confidence. You know, the book of Isaiah describes this idea of what it means to have God in your midst. Like a green beret fighting with you and for you and showing you you can trust him. It's the Lord's going to go up like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war, like a warrior. He'll cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. What if your enemy was uncertainty or fear or circumstances beyond your control, but you knew you had a warrior with you? How would that give you confidence? Well, this is what archaeologists have been looking at for years. There's something that strikes them when they looked at the tabernacle. There's something that was very strange about it. They were doing some exploring in some Egyptian hieroglyphics. There's this giant wall over in Egypt. When they came to this wall, they noticed a couple columns. And on the back of the column in hieroglyphics, somebody began to trace and draw out what they found. And what they found was King Ramesses, Pharaoh Ramesses II's war camp. Let me show you what that looks like. Because when they looked at it, there was something striking about it. The way it was outlined, the way it was viewed. It had an outer perimeter made of shields. It had one entrance that came to a chamber. And that chamber had two parts. One part that had priests offering incense. Then there was another part where the Pharaoh sat. 
And what was interesting to the archaeologists is that clearly for the Egyptians, that setup, that look was designed to be a war camp to let the Egyptians know that there was a warrior, the Pharaoh was in their midst. So why does God design a facility that's laid out very, very similar? Let's go inside and take a look. Well, welcome to Adventures with God. You know, God wanted to take his people on an adventure into the wilderness. He wanted them to follow him so he could be their compass, their true north. They could trust him for his power and his strength to overcome any obstacle. You see, he gave them the, the dimensions to this, this big tent, this big movable tent, right after he had defeated the fearsome Egyptian army with 10 mighty plagues. And he was showing them that they could trust him to overcome any obstacle. So here's the question. Why these dimensions? Why an outer court with a tent inside of it? Why a tent made up of two different chambers? Why an altar at one location? Why was everyone allowed in the outer court, but only priests and VIPs in the inner court? Well, it's because God is an ultimate educator. He moved from the known, what they'd already seen, to the unknown. You see, God was designing this tent to echo what they'd already seen in the kingly tent of the Pharaoh. See, this was Ramesses' war tent. It represented his power and his might. And before you came in here, right outside was a wash basin. Think of it like a bird bath. You had to wash up to recognize you're moving into the, the space of someone sacred, a king, royalty. You don't want to meet your royal highness with, with dirty hands. And this space, only VIPs were invited in. There was a strict protocol, and it was strictly enforced. But the Pharaoh wanted you to know that he was a warrior on earth, and God did the same. Now, this inner space was designed to show the value of the king, the God on earth, the warrior king that was the Pharaoh, a king that would lead the way in whatever your obstacle that you were facing. And so this sacred space had examples of his power. There was a source of light. Now, God's source of light was a menorah, a little bit different, but there was a source of light in both. There was also an incense altar. Expensive incense was burned to show how valuable this king was. It also reminded you that the Egyptians prayed to Pharaoh as the God king, the God on earth. They were trusting him for victory. Now, of course, there was food in the Pharaoh's chambers. Maybe not a table with showbread, but there was the finest foods, gourmet food to remind you that this king only ate the very best. Now here's what's interesting. Recently, archaeologists have found hieroglyphics showing exactly what King Ramesses II's war camp looked like. And it is set up exactly as God mirrored it with his changes to bring the significance of him as a warrior king to his people. It had an outer perimeter. Sure enough, you see all kinds of people gathered around that tent within the perimeter. You see there are priests bowing down and praying in that sacred space. Then you see there's a separate chamber, sure enough, where the king himself, the God on earth, sat. All of what God was doing is taking what his people already knew and using that as a teaching tool 
to understand what it was like to come into the presence of the real warrior king who could lead you and I into battle. Now behind the curtain in God's space was a symbol of his presence. The warrior king was here. But keep in mind that he had defeated the Pharaoh and all of his armies. So God was saying, hey, I am the ultimate warrior king. I'm the ultimate king you can trust to lead the way. And I will fight evil on your behalf. So it kind of frames the tabernacle differently. We have two different war camps. Which warrior can you trust when you face life? And which one's going to make you victorious? They're similar, number one, because God was trying to take the known and move to the unknown. But secondly, if you look at the hieroglyphics of both Egypt and Israel, Israel tells a story of Noah. The hieroglyphics of Egypt tell an almost identical story that they can trace their way back to the time of Noah. And sure enough, as I addressed in the first service today, there's several reasons why Ramesses II, his war camp, which we have at 1200 B.C., it's actually after Moses, but they think they've been using it for years, but they both trace back the idea of what God may have revealed during the time of Noah. Either way, the main point here is that both the Hebrews and the Egyptians saw this space as something that represented that they had a warrior among them. And for the Israelites, this warrior had taken on the greatest warriors of their day, the Egyptians. Now, to understand that, I need to give you a little history. Tell you a little about what happened in Egypt. So up to the north, modern-day Macedonia, are the Hittites. And the Hittites were fighting against the Egyptians, and they would just battle back and forth. And right in the middle, they'd always come face-to-face -face with Israel, who was kind of stuck between these two world powers. Well, the Hittites eventually make their way down and crush the Egyptians, even take over their capital city in one day. The Egyptians decide never again. No one will ever defeat us again. And they became the technological experts at war in their day. And here's what they did. They reverse engineered all of the chariots from the Hittites. See, the Israelites, I mean, the, the Egyptians originally had a, a chariot wheel with four spokes. You've probably seen them before in a museum. The problem is that everything's made out of wood. And you're trying to run your archer on that chariot. And he's bouncing up and down with that axle. And because the, the spokes are at 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, every time it pivots, your, your wooden wheel gives a little bit. And it makes it hard to aim your arrow. So here's what they did to become the warriors of their day. The Egyptians went from four spokes to six spokes. And this created incredible stability for their warriors. The second thing they did is it's not even spokes. They actually took a piece of, of hardened wood like a V. And they actually made part of it was the spoke on the left. The other part was the spoke on the right. And they fused them together so that the weight would be distributed between the left side and the right side. This allowed that wheel to be incredibly stable and that inner axle to barely move up and down because of the stability. This became a huge benefit for them in war. Then they had a pivot joint at the top. This meant when the horse turned, the chariot could pivot with it, creating more stability. They put a U-joint at the bottom section, which allowed this thing to be rock-solid and not disconnect. And then they expanded the actual chariot. See, the Hittites realized that there was a problem with chariots. If you wanted to go into battle, you needed three people. One guy to run the chariot, one guy to shoot, but somebody had to protect the horses from hand-to-hand -hand combat. They called him the runner. 
So he would run alongside the horses, boom, 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 trying to defend the horses from the oncoming hand-to-hand combat, which meant no matter how fast your horses were, you were always limited by the poor runner, right? Because he can only run so long and so fast. So the Egyptians took their chariot and expanded it. So now it had twice the size, so you could fit three people, the runner, the archer, and you could now fit the rider. So the runner could defend for a little bit, but he could then rest. And all of a sudden, this technological advancement was amazing. And then they took the back wheel. Instead of being in the middle of the chair, they moved it to the far end. Engineers have studied the Egyptians now with modern technology, and they cannot find a way with modern technology to improve these designs. The Egyptians were the warriors of their day and defeated the Hittites, defeated everybody. Let me go back to those hieroglyphics. So the hieroglyphics we find from Ramesses II, which are addressed in this book, you will see all around the Pharaoh's war tent are people fighting. Those are the Hittites and the Egyptians. And in this account, it said that when all the Hittites came in, the Pharaoh warrior was able to come and defeat them all because of his power. So, if you've been hearing that story, the legend of the Egyptian power all your life, and now you find a God who defeated Egypt in his mighty chariots at the Red Sea, and now he's put a tent with you that wherever you go, you have a warrior in your midst. It was designed to give you incredible confidence that God is with you. That you can know that whatever you face, you've got the greatest warrior in your midst. That's the confidence he wants for you and I. The second thing it was designed to do is that this war camp was designed, you have a warrior to give you courage and to put fear into your enemies. The war camp would, would give you courage but put fear into your enemies. Now, what did this look like? Well, again, if you've ever sat around a campfire, you know that... The minute you sit around the campfire, you start telling stories. And if Moses was sitting around the campfire with us, he would say, oh, let me tell you why you can be courageous, why you can trust. There was a time years ago, before we were wandering in this desert, that we came back to back at the Red Sea. And the Egyptian warriors with all their chariots were coming at us. And people were scared to death. And I showed them how they could be courageous. So, here's what I told them. as it says in Exodus. He says, I told them to not be afraid. Stand still. You're going to see the deliverance of our warrior God in this circumstance. He's going to accomplish this amazing thing for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. See him encouraging, putting courage in them because they know they have a warrior even though they face an adventure of a Red Sea and uncertainty and going out into the desert. But it didn't just put courage in them. It also put fear in their enemies. In fact, the story of what God does at the Red Sea is so powerful, it lasts 10, 20, 30, 40 years later. Moses will have died. His successor, Joshua, has taken over. And Joshua has snuck into a little place called Jericho. And while he's there in Jericho, he's hiding out. He's spying out the land. He climbs up to the roof. 
and there's a woman named Rahab there. And Rahab hears that they're coming. And he says, well, what's kind of the condition of this place? This place was really, really horrible. I mean, if you even helped the poor, they would torture you. I mean, it was such a malicious place. The, the, the historical background of this place is that this was just so malicious, almost like modern-day terrorists, a city in Jericho. And Joshua shows up, and this woman named Rahab is caring for him. And as she begins to talk, she says this. She says, oh, yeah, we have heard. We've heard what your warrior God does. We've heard what he did with the Red Sea, how he destroyed those things. We heard you took on some warriors, Sion and Og, these kind of gigantic seven-foot 10-foot guys. And as soon as we heard these things, what your God has done, which, what it means to have a warrior with you, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God is heaven above and on earth beneath. Something happened in them when they realized God was with them and the things they feared the most were actually fearful because the story of their warrior had already spread across the countryside. Let me give you one more piece. The book of Numbers, it's one of the first books of the Bible. And the first couple chapters seem really, really boring. It lists all the 12 tribes and a whole bunch of numbers. They're literally counting people. It's like reading an accounting ledger. But if you zoom out and see what he's saying, it's pretty powerful. If you were to look over a cliff, here's what it might look like. God put this tabernacle, this war tent, right in the middle of their community. It represented God's forgiveness. It represented a warrior was with you. And the whole society was centered on God's forgiveness and God's strength. Every day you'd go there for forgiveness. Every day you'd go there to talk with people. Everything was centered around this tent as they were wandering through the wilderness. The book of Numbers says, I want you to orient yourself very specifically to the north, south, east, and west. To the west, three tribes I want you to put. And it gives us the exact number going to the west. We can, three tribes, Benjamin, Manasseh, and Ephraim, very specifically going in one direction. And then it says, but to the east, I want you to put these three tribes. And there's a lot more of them. If you count up the kind of boring numbers, it's like, oh, this is like twice as much. So it goes twice as much in this direction as it goes in that direction. Huh, it's weird. Then he tells us, and to the north and south, I want you to take three tribes in both directions. You add up the numbers, and it's almost the identical amount of people. So what, Chad? I'm getting there. 1,500 years before the Romans even invent crucifixion, God walked through the wilderness and the image was a giant cross. At the center of it was a center where God was the warrior and God was the king and where people could find forgiveness and be restored in a relationship with him because he wanted his people to have courage that he was with them that he was making sacrifices for them. He was the kind of warrior who could make restitution with them. And that would inspire courage with them, knowing that everything else feared the power they had. Now, maybe that's just a fanciful story, right? You're like, I'm not sure if I believe in the Bible, and that seems maybe too hard to believe. Well, that's what the facts show. In fact, we're studying verse by verse of the book of Numbers come this January in our equipping service. Let me give you a modern example. Is it possible that a, a community centered on forgiveness, centered on a warrior, could transform the world? Let me go back to my story of Colonel Scott Mann. 
What taught him that rooftop leadership of being willing to fight as a green beret for other people, even people who didn't trust him, was his mentor, Jim. See, Jim had come to Afghanistan 10 years earlier. And Jim had heard that the only way they were going to make any progress was to meet with that 82-year-old freedom fighter. He was in Afghanistan, and he was burnt badly by the American forces back in the early 2000s. But this Green Beret did what he was trained to do, build relationships with people who don't trust and do the work through the indigenous people. But it was dangerous, and it was scary. So Jim got a meeting with that freedom fighter. And everybody was armed to the teeth in that village. When he approached the village, they made him take off his weapons, his guns, his knives. He took off his body armor, and there he was, fully and completely vulnerable, meeting with this Afghanistan chief. Everyone around him hated him and everything he represents, and they were all armed, and he was unarmed. He looked at this 82-year-old elder, and he said, the first thing I want to say is I'm sorry on behalf of the American coalition forces that we have not communicated well, that we have not taught well, that we have not been in partnership with one another. Now, Jim hadn't been there for the last 10 years, but he began with forgiveness. They said the tension in that meeting suddenly changed. This elder of the Afghanistan village Suddenly his posture changed and he began to talk and dialogue. And he said, well, then why are you here? And Jim, this green beret, pulled out a computer. He said, watch this. And he pressed play. And for the next six minutes, they sat in silence as they watched video from September 11th. Planes running into our buildings. And people jumping out of buildings. And this tribal leader in Afghanistan, he said, I have never seen this before. That's what ISIS did to you. I now understand why you're here. They began to talk about their lives. Jim began to describe growing up in New Mexico, where he grew up very, very poor, but he was around a lot, a lot of Indian reservations, people who lived in the area. And he said, I studied a lot of Sitting Bull. He goes, I love hearing of the escapades of Sitting Bull, how he was able to outsmart the, the forces that were against him in his day. And his stories were so incredible about Sitting Bull that this 82-year-old this fighter in Afghanistan is leaning in, <laughs> learning about Sitting Bull. And Jim turns to him and says, you know what? I've studied how you fought against the Russians 20 years ago, the way things you did, the the strategies you employed, you remind me of Sitting Bull. From that day forward, <laughs> this Afghanistan elder took the name Sitting Bull. It began the, the beginning of an incredible relationship. Sitting Bull will eventually adopt Jim, a green beret, as his son, his adopted son. In fact, Osama bin Laden, five years later, will say the greatest threat to terrorism in all of Afghanistan. Everything that was stopping his network, he said, traced back to the relationship between Jim, a Green Beret, and this freedom-fighting Afghanistan elder, Sitting Bull. 
Is it possible that people that disagree on things can come together with trust and forgiveness? Is it possible that two warriors can transform the world and take on evil? It's happened. Even in a day and a weekend like this that we think about that idea, with somebody willing to be vulnerable, someone willing to put in the center of their warrior relationship forgiveness that the world got transformed. It's not just for them, it's for us. I was having lunch just last week with my friend Chuck. And Chuck said, Chuck, can I tell you what God's doing in my life? I said, Chuck, I'd love to hear that. He said, I've been coming to Horizon for about you know, nine months now. He said, and I grew up in a, a, a challenging circumstances. I, I kind of lead a high management team of an international company. Now I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. But man, I grew up and my parents got divorced and then remarried, then divorced and remarried to each other. But it just created so much instability. My dad kind of didn't have jobs that are very stable. And what that put in me is a sense that I'm not sure that I can trust that whatever happens in life isn't going to fall through in a few more minutes. And that haunting fear that something's about to fall apart just, it plagues me. And I've been coming to your study on the book of Hebrews in our first service. And I'm beginning to learn that God is for me. And God has adopted me. And God loves me. And God is a warrior that is for me. And I am starting to trust God in ways I've never trusted him before. So tell me about that. He goes, like, today we got this big billion-dollar deal that we're working on. And the stakes are high to do this well. And this would have had me so anxious and so nervous. And I'm still, you know, concerned. i got to do well. But there's something now I trust. That if this doesn't go the way I hope, God's going to use it to bring out my imperfections and to mature me. And I can have confidence in that. If it does go well, God's not trying to put stuff in front of me and then you know, pull the rug out from underneath me. I can trust him. My fear level's going down. My peace level's going up. I'm starting to sense what it's like to walk with God through life. I thought, that's it. That's what it feels like. That's what it looks like when you have this, this sense of the warriors with you. Because Jesus shows up and he says, listen, I got something better than a tent with a symbolic God in a, in a tabernacle. Jesus says, if, if you invite me into your life, I will forgive you and I will come live in you and you will be the tabernacle or the tent of God. He'll be in your heart. Every Christian say that weird thing like, Jesus is living in my heart. It's the idea that God's spirit comes and lives in you. So wherever you go, whatever adventure you're on, whatever challenges you face, you know God is with you. And that will give you incredible confidence and courage, and whatever you face, you have nothing to fear. You become a warrior because you know the greatest warrior. So here's my big question for you. How would you face the wars in your life if you knew you had the greatest warrior on your side? Life's filled with battles, right? Battle against depression, battle against doubt. Sometimes they're fun challenges. I don't know how I'm going to get around this. I don't know how we're going to figure this out. It's fun battle sometimes. But how would you face the battles to persevere, to overcome, to learn to forgive again in your marriage, to give your son or daughter a restart after they hurt you, to reorganize and reorient your business after challenging years with COVID? How do you face the battles and how would you face the battles in your life if you knew you weren't alone? And you knew you had the greatest warrior on your side. What if you could do what Moses and the people did? You could actually sing 
that you've got a warrior fighting for you. I'm going to invite the band to come out and do this song. We have heard this song before by Demi Lovato. It speaks about what happens when you begin to live like the most important thing in your life. If you really believe there's a warrior that will fight for you, who cares about you, who forgives you, who adopts you, how might that transform you? You may say, well, I have a tendency to be a more fearful or, not, or be a worrier or to be a controller. But what if some of the good things about being a worrier, your, your heart for other people, some of the good things about being a controller, your good management, a good manager, what if all those things could come together and you'd have the good side of it without the downside of it? How would you face the battles and wars in your life? if you knew you had the greatest warrior. Because if you hang out with a warrior long enough, you turn into a warrior yourself. Let's listen together. Well, that's what I want for you. I want you to have that confidence and that courage that comes from knowing that God is with you. He can take the pain in your life, the challenges in your life, and the difficulty in your life and work it into making you the best version of yourself. Now, sometimes you need people to help do that. We just had a women's group a few weeks ago. About 100 plus women were here just talking with each other. How do we do that? How do we incorporate? How do we build that into our life? And many of you shared how helpful that was with Beth Guggenberger. We have another one coming up in a few weeks that maybe as a group of guys, you're like, you know, I've never really talked about a group of guys to really talk about life, build some friendships, figure out how to do this thing called life in a more warrior-esque kind of way, in a more challenging kind of way, in a more strategic way. How do I take this God thing and put it into my life? So we got a brand new series coming up just for guys on Sundays and Mondays, and it's called The Four Critical Decisions. And these are four critical decisions you can make that can transform your life and figure out how to live this thing out, how to go on this adventure with God. So Ken asked if he could just explain that a little bit to us this morning. And so let's watch this video real quick, and then we'll have a prayer and end the day. Four critical decisions. Let's watch. Hi, Horizon. It's Ken Kington, and I'm so looking forward to being back there in over 30 years of performance stand-up comedy and speaking at, at thousands of corporate events and motivational, inspirational events, I met some of the most amazing leaders from all walks of life, heads of departments in Ivy League schools. I, I met the CEOs, COOs, and CFOs of 80 of the Fortune 100 companies in the world at one event. And that was just one event of thousands of corporate events I've done. I've sat down and had dinner with Super Bowl winning coaches, Heisman Trophy winners, and the list goes on and on. But what I love to do in those situations is listen. How did you get there? What was the key? What was the secret? And I discovered it wasn't abilities and it wasn't even opportunities. It was actually decisions that these amazing leaders make. And I found over the years that they started to fall in one of four critical categories that was the key to unlock success. So whatever your frustration or maybe your desire is, maybe it's relational or financial or vocational, I promise one of these four critical decisions will be the key to unlock those. We're going to look at one each week starting on September 26th and Monday mornings uh, on the 27th and moving forward for four weeks. You can make them all or if you just make one, that's fine. But I promise you're going to walk away with some amazing insights it's going to be at Horizon. You can go to their website right now and get a few more details, but register as soon as possible because the series Four Critical Decisions starts September 26th and 27th. 
It's Sunday nights at 8 o'clock, Monday mornings at 6.09. They're interchangeable. Come to whatever you can. Be there whenever you can, but don't miss it. So anyway, so I just want to invite you to be part of that. You can come talk to me, talk to Drew, talk to us at the hearth room, third door on your left. We'd love to help you figure out how to live this thing out. Let me pray for us. And with September 11th, let's pray for all those who were affected 20 years ago, still carrying the baggage of that. Uh, those in Afghanistan, with everything going on right now that need safety, why don't we just pray for all of that on behalf of our community. Father, we pray for peace. In a world filled with so much chaos and so much division, Father, we pray for your shalom, your peace, your sense of, of hope. God, teach us how we can be part of the solution, how we can love others the way you loved. We can forgive others, that we can converse with people we disagree with, that we can find and center our lives around hope. We pray for protection and healing for all those hurt 20 years ago, still carrying the battle scars. We pray for those who are in difficult circumstances right now. God, in all these things, that you would work through the difficulty and bring about your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you all next week.